The following audio is from Christ Presbyterian Church in Nashville, Tennessee, where our mission is to follow Christ and His mission of loving people, places, and things to life. For more information about Christ Presbyterian Church, please visit ChristPres.org. Today's scripture is from 1 Kings 18, 20-40. So Ahab sent to all the people of Israel and gathered the prophets together at Mount Carmel. And Elijah came near to all the people and said, How long will you go limping between two different opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him. But if it's by all, then follow him. And the people did not answer him a word. Then Elijah said to the people, I, even I only, am left a prophet of the Lord, but Baal's prophets are 450 men. Let two bulls be given to us, and let them choose one bull for themselves, and cut it in pieces, and lay it on the wood, but put no fire to it. And I will prepare the other bull, and lay it on the wood, and put no fire to it. And you call upon the name of your God, and I will call upon the name of the Lord. And the God who answers by fire, he is God." And the people answered, it is well spoken. Then Elijah said to the prophets of Baal, choose for yourselves one bull and prepare it first for you are many and call upon the name of your God, but put no fire to it. And they took the bull that was given them and they prepared it and called upon the name of Baal from morning until noon saying, oh, Baal, answer us. But there was no voice and no one answered. And they limped around the altar that they had made. And at noon, Elijah mocked them, saying, Cry aloud, for he is a god. Either he is musing, or he is relieving himself, or he is on a journey, or perhaps he is asleep and must be awakened. And they cried aloud and cut themselves after their custom with swords and lances until the blood gushed out upon them. And as midday passed, they raved on until the time of the offering of the oblation, but there was no voice. No one answered. No one paid attention. Then Elijah said to all the people, come near to me. And all the people came near to him. He repaired the altar of the Lord that had been thrown down. And he took 12 stones, according to the number of the tribes of the sons of Jacob, to whom the word of the Lord came, saying, Israel shall be your name. And with the stones, he built an altar in the name of the Lord. And he made a trench about the altar, as great as would contain, contain two seahs of seed. And he put the wood in order and cut the bull in pieces and laid it on the wood. And he said, fill four jars with water and pour it on the burnt offering and on the wood. And he said, do it a second time. And they did it a second time. And he said, do it a third time. And they did it a third time. And the water ran around the altar and filled the trench also with water. And at the time of the offering of the oblation, Elijah the prophet came near and said, O Lord God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, let it be known this day that you are God in Israel and that I am your servant and that I have done all these things at your word. Answer me, O Lord, Answer me that this people may know that you, O Lord, are God, and that you have turned their hearts back. Then the fire of the Lord fell and consumed the burnt offering and the wood and the stones and the dust and licked up the water that was in the trench. And when all the people saw it, they fell on their faces and said, The Lord, he is God. The Lord, he is God. And Elijah said to them, Seize the prophets of Baal, let not one of them escape, and they seized them. 
And Elijah brought them down to the brook Kishon and slaughtered them there. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Thanks, Emily. Emily has one of those voices that she could just keep reading, and we would just sit here and just listen and listen and listen. Thank you. Those wonderful, um, not only reading, but passage that you brought us. My name is Stacy Croft, if I haven't met you. Uh, I'm the pastor here at Christ Pres Music Row, and um, uh, I hope to get to meet you if I haven't, um, and I uh, hope to grab some time with you, uh, whether today or another day. Uh, please email me or grab me, and uh, let's get some coffee. I'd love to hear your story and help you plug into the life of our church further. Um, you know, one thing that uh, summer brings, and I know it, it's true for me, I'm sure it is for you, is that you begin to see more of the social media posts of, what, of not only what you're doing, but what everyone else is doing. And you begin to kind of go, oh man, that looks awesome. You know, you start looking at like, hey, where's my trip for next year or next month? Or man, why am I not doing that? Or why is my family not experiencing that? And you kind of start, you know, shaping your mind around what you're missing out on. And really what uh, researchers uh, and is now in the Oxford Eng English Dictionary known as FOMO. Uh, I don't know if you know that term. Some of you, let me help you. If you're not familiar with FOMO, it stands for fear of missing out. It actually is something that was put in our Oxford English Dictionary uh, not too long ago uh, because we use it so much. In fact, uh, part of the definition is that uneasy and sometimes all-consuming feeling that you're missing out. Uh, you know what's interesting is it's something that we encounter and deal with on a regular basis, whether we would acknowledge it as the defined thing or not. And part of it is because um, it really comes out in little subtle ways of us, ways that we, we long to do more, long to have more, long to feel more, experience more, and yet see other people getting the experience or being able to do it, and we want that. It's jealousy kind of comes in there. But you know, the, the other interesting thing I read is, um, is how, what it does to us negatively. It doesn't just create jealousy in us. One thing I read was that it actually erodes our not only being present where we are, but our loyalty to what we have. Uh, this passage is, is um, an amazing passage. I remember reading this passage when I was really little, and all I remembered was a lot of water. There's just a lot of water poured on an altar, but there's a lot more going on here. It, it begins with the entire question that we need to ask ourselves. It begins with this. Elijah asks, when he brought the people near to him, and this is like a crowd watching in verse 21. How long will you go limping between two opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him. But if Baal, follow him. What that term means, limping between two opinions, is there was no loyalty. It was that limping, this weak kind of, oh, I wish I was here, I wish I was there. It's, it's almost in our way of looking at it like FOMO. They wish, they're constantly wishing for something else to come in their day and help them out. It, it's in, in some literal definitions, what it meant to have limping opinions, it meant to take the crutch and then put it under the other arm and then put it under the other arm and just keep switching. My uh, youngest son has a boot on his foot because he fractured his foot. And it'd be interesting if you were to say, hey, what happened to your foot? And you'd say, I don't know, I'm just wearing a boot and just kind of switch it to each foot. Well, which foot's broken? I don't know, we just kind of put it on whichever foot kind of works for the day. 
Well, that's kind of the strangeness of what limping opinions means. It's a waffling. It's constantly looking where you're not and having no loyalty. And we started last week at looking at the life of Elijah. He's a prophet um, that in this book called First Kings, it's an Old Testament book. If you're unfamiliar with the Old Testament, there are, are a couple books called First, Second Samuel, First Kings, First and Second Chronicles that like detail the life of the kingdom of the people of Israel. You may have heard of names like David and Solomon. Well, those names were the the upper echelon of kings. They were the ones that brought the kingdom together. They, they brought the kingdom uh, peace and health and life. But now what we're reading is the kingdom has been divided. There's a northern kingdom, southern kingdom, and the kings that rule each could really care less about whether God is God or not. If he's helpful to them in their kingdom, great. But in this instance, he's not. And here God drops Elijah, his prophet. And you notice even the, the language, the numerical language in verse 22, it says, I'm just one prophet. You have 450 for this God you serve here. That's what was happening. Jezebel, the wife of, of Ahab, who was the king at the time, had killed all the prophets she could of God. All prophets like Elijah. And here we have what you would find in one of the a movie you watch. Like when you're waiting for, it's kind of that buildup, whether it's a, a, a hero villain type movie where you have the hero and you have the villain and you're waiting for them to actually make contact face to face and finally meet. This is that meeting. Elijah meets Ahab, the king, who has been wanting to find him. And they look face to face and Ahab gives this funny notion of, now you're the troublemaker. You're the one causing me all these problems. So what's going to happen? So a contest ensues. And so here's what we're going to look at today with this. What does it look like for have, as it says, to have our hearts turned back from limping opinions? And how do we do that? We're going to look at it through three things here. First, the altar. Second, the authority. And finally, the acceptance. The altar, the authority, and the acceptance. You know, I was uh, just sometimes thumbing through articles. I don't know if you do that on your phone or what it is. And um, I saw one that was kind of interesting. It said celebrities that are religious and ones that aren't. Here are 10 that are and 10 that aren't or something like that. And I was like, well, that's a weird thing. What? You know, okay. It, it, you know, just in the middle of whatever other articles. So I clicked on it. I was like, why not? Let's look at this. And, you know, it just went back and forth between what major celebrities, uh, you know, are religious, be it any religion, or those who aren't, who would say they're agnostic or atheist and whatever else. And as I just kind of, I didn't really read a whole lot of it. I just kind of thumbed through to see who, why are they picking this? I was kind of like, what, what, why this article? What, what is it bringing out? <clears throat> the interesting thing to me is that I think what they're doing is trying to show numerically, hey, there are people who are religious and there aren't. And here's why, and you're like, okay, well then why? It, it shows like, okay, is there a balance? Can I just kind of pick and choose what I want? You know, this passage begins with, with Elijah facing Ahab, the king, and he says, look, there's a drought in the land. And Ahab says, you're the problem with it. You're the reason. You've made our gods mad, Baal. And Elijah says, okay, look, I will create a contest for us. Literally, this is what happens. And he says, we'll take the altars, we'll do sacrifices, 
and we're going to see who answers. And to Elijah's credit, over and over, you know, instead of picking what would balance out the equation, he says, look, I'm one prophet. You have 450 prophets. You can bring them all. I'll give you all home, home field advantage. Everything you want, home field advantage. I don't know if you're following baseball or follow sports, but they're always showing numbers of how well a team does at home and how well they do away because home field advantage matters. Elijah's like, I'll give it all to you. Let's see. He's like, let, let me, we'll go on your mountain. We'll do everything you want. And they decide to do this contest with an altar. This is where it leads. And you can kind of notice in this passage when it's talking about that the altar of Baal is already there. But it, it, later on in verse 30, when he draws the people to him, he has to repair the, uh, the altar to God. That there are two altars, and it's obvious that the altar to Baal has been there and has been sitting, sitting up. But the altar to God has been knocked down over and over. It's just not even needed. And why an altar? See, this is key for this contest because here's the deal. What is an altar? It is the meeting place of God and man. It is the place where man, sinful and broken and all that he is with all his needs, all his wants, all his desires, brings sacrifice to plead to the one that he believes is in control. It is the crux of our life. And here's what's interesting. Like when we mention altar, you and I could probably think of kind of archaic things, right? It could be interesting to think an altar. We don't really have physical, tangible altars per se in our world, but we really have a lot of intangible ones because everything around us has become our altar, really. The contest requires worshipers. It requires an altar. It requires sacrifice. But everything about our life does. And this is where Elijah is genius. He says, let's, let's take what it requires us to where it matters, to the altar. Andy Crouch, uh, who's an incredible thinker and writer, and um, he, if you ever read any of his stuff, he does a lot of cultural uh, diagnoses and such. He talks a lot about um, idols and altars and our worship towards that. He, he has one uh, article in particular, it's kind of expanded into larger articles and shorter one, but it's called Promises, Promises, ways we, we look to uh, the things that we think are going to bring us life and light. Listen to what he says. Over and over again, through history, with inexorable logic, idols end up demanding the ultimate sacrifice, even when they stop rewarding us. The ultimate sacrifice is, of course, human beings. And you know what happens? Notice what happens in this passage. It's exactly what he's describing. That they begin crying out to Baal. He says, you go first. 450, imagine, there are not even 450 in this room. Imagine this room, uh, probably double that. Surrounding an altar, crying out, and nothing. Nothing, nothing at all coming. And that's where they begin to work harder. <laughs> they begin to cry out more. They begin to cut themselves. They begin to do what was common practice for them. Hey, we're gonna get you to listen. We're gonna sacrifice even parts of ourselves in order for you to do this. But that's not far from us. I know that sounds very archaic and disgusting and like, what's going on? But if you think about the connection of what Andy Crouch is saying about us, 
is that we're willing to give anything to what we offer sacrifice to in order to give back to us. The question really comes is, what is the thing that you give to the most that is your altar? I read somewhere that it was just a passing comment said, most of our desks have become our altars. (laughs) It's like, wow. That could be in a classroom. It could be in an office. It could be at home. It could be anywhere. The place that we give and sacrifice our most to give back most, even when it doesn't reward us, we continue to give back of all, even ourselves, so that we can hear it. So we can hear that we're doing fine. We're okay. That life keeps spinning on. And here's when we know we're at, what we're sacrificing to is when someone comes along and asks us a question about it and we get defensive about it. Or we push back. Or we make excuses for why we're spending so much time here. Or why this matters so much. Or why we need this so much. Protective of it. Isn't that because we are in our altar of sorts? We may not limp necessarily between opinions, but our opinions are our apathy. Are opinions pragmatic or is it something else? That what happens in here can be divided from what's out there. Maybe we bring in here and say, God, I'm bringing this to you, to this, maybe your altar to sacrifice so in order that you can reward me. You notice the big thing between what the prophets of Baal do and what Elijah does. They begin cutting themselves, warranting crying, hoping that there's a voice that speaks back to them. And what Elijah calls out to differently in verse 36 is this. Elijah the prophet came near and said, O Lord, God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, let it be known this day that you are the God of Israel and that I am your servant and that I have done all these things in your word. He appeals not to cutting, but to the covenant He appeals to language that actually drills down who is God different than anything else we want to sacrifice to that we even give of ourselves. That God says, I'm the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. That's actually language that drives back even further before the kingdom was even formed that said, there are these patriarchs that God's relationship shows his faithfulness through generation to generation. It's that it carries forward, that God is a God of relationship, that he, Elijah sets up these stones. Notice that in verse 30, it says, and he repaired the altar of the Lord that, he, that had been thrown down. The word repaired is actually the word for healed. It actually means that Elijah took the stones and repaired it to show healing that is about to happen. Not on Elijah's part, but on God's. Notice the stark difference of cutting, of wounding to healing and relationship. What, what, what turns our hearts back from limping opinions, from things that call us to themselves? Is it that we just try harder and keep trying to get God to hear us and anything else in our lives that we want? Or is God the one saying, I am here, I'm in relationship, and there is no wounding you need to do of yourself? That he takes it up in himself. See, Elijah was doing more than appeal to God. He was preparing for him. 
to show his love. Here's the question. If the God you are really worshiping requires the cutting and sacrifices that you read here and asks you of costing yourself in a way that doesn't he hasn't already take to, taken up in himself, you are probably worth that is a sign of something that you are worshiping. That is not of him. And that is the place where if you're pushed on and you say, no, I, I just, this is a, I just got to do more. I just got to add. I, what is it about you that is defensive and protective of those things? Where in this case, Elijah doesn't have to protect him. He knows who protects him. It's of a different God. It's a God of authority authority and power. You know, uh, Elijah gives them home field advantage. And it's interesting because if you read this, this passage over and over, I remember like I was saying as a kid, the thing that people said when I was in a Sunday school class or something, I don't know why or what I remember is them just saying, you just keep bringing water. Just Just bring more water. And Elijah is setting up this one altar and they've had theirs and they did had their try. And then Elijah's like, okay, now cut up the pieces. And I want, and he he does this even, he says uh, in verse 30, come near to me because he wants them to know there's no sleight of hand here. This isn't a trick. This isn't a joke. And when they see them, don't, don't you wonder what they're thinking when he's pouring the water on there? That he's like making, is, is he kind of like just digging in in some way? And, and, and don't you know that they're kind of thinking, what, what, what's the deal with this guy? You know, the question you have to ask is when you look at this, and, and where you're kind of probably already going to, but why, why is Baal appealing? Can we talk about that for a second? Why is Baal appealing? Why 450 prophets? Why is the whole nation? Sur- Let, let's talk about that for just a second. A couple reasons. One is it car- Baal carried royal sanction. In other words, it was the popular religion of the culture and of the the political climate. It was what they looked to. So it it didn't help that that they were also killing off the prophets of the Lord. And they were saying, this is going to be the religion. And Baal is going to be the one we all center around. But think about that. What it's really saying is, how much are they limping between opinions because they're swayed by whose power is in, in the seat at the moment? Are we swayed more often by who is in power or who is really in authority? The appeal. The other thing was maybe tradition. Baal worship was not a new thing. It wasn't a new kind of contemporary deal. In fact, immediately when the people of God left Egypt, crossed the river Jordan into uh, the promised land, guess what was there to meet them? Baal worship. It was all over the place. And Baal, there, in fact, if you look up Baal, there's not just one, there's a, several different types of Baals. So that what they would do is they'd have this kind of bale serves here and this kind of bale serves here. And so they would have different bales and they would remove certain characteristics of that certain God to fit their needs and what they wanted. Sounds often like what we do. I remember being at, uh, in college, going in to get food 
um, at the dining hall. Uh, I wanted eggs. It was breakfast. Uh, maybe it was breakfast, probably about 10 when I woke up. And um, I go in there, I set my tray down. They're out of eggs. I, I'm kind of like, oh, can I have some eggs? Sweet woman turns around, goes in the door, comes out with a yellow bag. And I think, okay, I hope that's not mine. Oh, it is. Rips open one end, kind of does this. It slides and kind of forms into the tray in front of me. And I just kind of picked up tray and went to the next place. Because I thought, oh, do I want to eat that? Well, that's actually how we treat often character of God that may be unappealing to us. Parts of him that we go, that doesn't really fit my agenda. But why was Baal appealing? Because you could manage him how you wanted him. You could sacrifice here. You could say, I want this part of you here to help me in this part of my life here. How do we do that? When we wouldn't want anyone else to do that in our lives with us in our relationship, we, but yet we do that with God. His authority can't be severed, but his relevance is the same. So this is the, the other thing that's fascinating. Baal was a storm, fire, and fertility god overall. So if you took all of those Baals and put it under one heading, he was a fire god. Notice where this is going. He was the god of fire. He brought fertility, life. He took it and gave it. And so the relevance was you look to Baal for your needs regular throughout the year, day to day, you went to him because where was your grain coming from? Where was the daily need that you had coming from? And if it didn't happen, what did that mean? You've angered him somehow, angered some part of him. You never knew, right? So you see where the argument's going. We may not have bales in our life, but we do have those kind of things for us about we look and take characteristics of God or we center God around our need rather than who he is. What causes us to limp more and more between him and anything else is when our needs become the major focus. Eugene Peterson said it this way beautifully. He said, the prayers in the Bible were not prayed by people trying to understand themselves. They were more of the record of people, nor, uh, sorry, they are not the record of people searching for the meaning of life. They were prayed by people who understood that God, not their feelings, was the center. Human experiences might provoke prayers, but they don't condition them. You see, our feelings if, if, if you find that, and I do this pattern, I'm sure maybe even during confession you felt this. You find yourself falling into a repetition. Maybe you pray the same thing when you get into those spots. You have the same thing in your mind. You know, it's interesting when Jesus was teaching the Sermon on the Mount, there's a place where he teaches on prayer. We even call it the Lord's Prayer, right? When we, we say that, but it's actually the disciple's prayer. And he begins it by saying, don't pray. He actually says, don't pray like this before he says, this is how you pray. And what he does say is he says, don't pray like the pagans do, which is like mindless phrases. What did, he didn't mean pagan like what we typically think. He meant pagan meant what you wrap the world around you, worldliness. Because what he was saying was pagans pray mindlessly by repeating the same thing over and over or the name of that God in order to evoke them to do what we wanted them to do. Because here's what 
we know. God says, and he says, pray like this, our Father who art in heaven. Notice the massive difference. Who is the real Father? See, I love it, and this has always been, if you're a sarcastic person, Elijah is one of my favorite people because he really warrants sarcasm to me. But you read him here as the, as the prophets of Baal are trying to get the attention of Baal. Come, and he, he has this list, and this is, this is from the Scripture. As he says, well, Elijah mocked him, cry aloud, for he is a god, little g, in the, in the passage. Either he's musing, or he's relieving himself, otherwise going to the restroom, or he's on a journey, or perhaps he's asleep and must be awakened. And it sounds at first like Elijah is just a jerk. But you know actually what he was doing geniusly. If you look at old Ugaritic texts, the limitations, the picture, the character of what Baal was is what he's describing. So he's actually throwing it back on them. Hey, here's what I know about your God. And everything you read there is what? What we encounter. It's limits. It's limitation. And nothing drives us to frustration than coming up against our own limits. And what Elijah is trying to cry out is the one you serve is deeply limited. And yet they go back to it. So much so they continue cutting themselves. This was the deal with the Pharisees when Jesus constantly in the New Testament was having them. The Pharisees wanted to create laws and ways to order their day so that they could not be limited. So they could keep everything and feel like their life was in order so that they had everyone. Look, everyone was looking to them asking Jesus, well, how do we live up to that? They had religious FOMO about the Pharisees. We feel like we can't do that. How in the world? But yet, who comes into the kingdom? Who flocks towards God's authority over those religious leaders? It's the destitute, the outcasts, the social pariahs, all of them. Because what warrants them Instead of sacrificing over and over to what they think can make them them, they look to the authority who loves them the most. You know, one of the other descriptions of Baal that is so profound that if you read it, it makes a lot of sense is the term husband. And you know what the Lord does from Genesis? If you want to just, here's, here's the Bible for you. Genesis to Revelation. The consistent term that God uses for his people is how he is our husband. What kind of relationship and marriage is Baal showing? And what kind is God showing? If you want a consistent pattern of real relationship, why does God have authority? Yes, he, he shows it. And he does. He sends fire down as the only one that does. It licks up everything. It's all in him. But what is he actually showing? He's showing who 
loves them the most. You know why? Because it doesn't end with his authority. It ends with his acceptance. Notice that. Notice that the, the whole story ends not just with God's fire, but the authority and the altar meet. How? In the acceptance. The whole thing surrounds a sacrifice. It's not just about God obliterating it. And, and it would be easy to look at that. That's where I remember all the, just keep throwing water on it. Let's see if God can lick up all the water. Is he powerful enough to lick up the water? That's not the point. Do you know what the point is? The altar and the authority meet because God consumes the sacrifice. And over and over, and I've never seen this before, this event happened in other places in the Old Testament that we never read. Leviticus, Chronicles, and over and over what it meant was God accepts his people. There is no other God that does that. No other God lays a table out like this to say, you're accepted, therefore you obey. Every other God says, you better obey if you want to be accepted. Is that real relationship? Who set this table? Guess what God did? He sent himself down. Elijah, when he meets Jesus... In the New Testament, there's this moment where you see Moses and Elijah and Jesus, and they both, Moses and Elijah, get to hear what Jesus' plan is in that moment. And it is of God sending himself, not just fire, but he sends himself to what? Not consume, but to be consumed. So that we wouldn't limp along looking at a million things with FOMO, our loyalty and being eroded, thinking, where do, I, where do I give allegiance? Especially if you're here this morning and you're like, what is Christianity? This is Christianity. This is God. And this is the one to be explored and to ask questions about. And why he is so distinct. Because he did, doesn't just show his strength. He shows his acceptance of them by consuming not just the fire, but showing in the New Testament that he would come and consume himself through his son, Jesus. If you're here this morning and you would say, I'm a follower of Jesus, but I find myself over and over of a pattern of keeping my life in sacrifice to this or that. Let this table be a reminder to drive you to the one the only one that will accept you. Actually, look, most of the things we sacrifice to are not necessarily evil things. They're things that are good things that we give our whole self to. But we say, well, I can give here and give here. What does Jesus say about money in the same Sermon on the Mount? He says, you cannot serve two masters. No one can. It is impossible to. Even if you try. If you, but if you learn to serve the one who is the true master, what does he say? You'll have it all. It'll make sense. There'll be freedom to go to your work, to struggle in your work, in your life, in your relationships, in your way you see your body, in your, in your wellness, in your whole world. 
And if you're here this morning and maybe you're wondering what this table's about, I, don't just come take of it because everybody else does. Take time with integrity to not feel like you're limping between opinions. But if you're a, a, a member in good standing of a, of a church and you know that you are a part of the kingdom of God and Him, then you may come. Otherwise, stay. Ask questions. Come to me. Figure that out. Let's talk about what that looks like. Because praise be to God, He has come down to consume His Son so that we might be brought in and accepted. Let's stand and speak to our acceptance.